Welcome to the My Buddy Green podcast. I'm Jason Wachab, founder and co-CEO of My Buddy Green, and your host. Hey everyone, there are some exciting innovations in the biohacking space, but unfortunately the conversation has definitely skewed more towards men. Why does biohacking have such a bro-dominated feel? Well, Dr. Molly Malouf is here to shift the narrative. A leading biohacker, Molly shares her unique wisdom specifically tailored to the biology of women. Biohacking deserves a major rebrand, and in this episode, you'll learn about all the underrated and overrated methods to increase health span and boost longevity. Now to the show. Molly, welcome. Hey, thanks for having me, Jason. So great to have you back on the show. Uh, I think the last time we saw each other was when we did this in our studio in Brooklyn back in September 2019. Yeah, back when people went to the office and all those. Oh my God, that was like literally (laughs) right as I was starting to study viruses. And I was like telling all my friends, I was like, guys, I'm like studying chronic fatigue syndrome and I'm so confused. Like, how come doctors think it's psychosomatic? It's clearly due to intracellular infections and viruses. And get this, we don't know anything about viruses. So we're totally screwed if we get another plague. And they're like, and I was like, and by the way, we're overdue for a plague. Isn't that crazy? And all my friends are like, what are you talking about? And I'm like, literally six months later, we're like, it's the beginning of the pandemic. And I just wish I would have like trusted my gut a little bit more and not been so much in panic mode when it happened. Because like, once the pandemic hit, I went into like, my God, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go quarantine? What are we, what's going to happen? And it was the whole thing was such a shit show. <laughs> you know, we all did, you know, I remember we didn't leave New York. So when it happened, we were Colleen and I and the kids were in Brooklyn the whole time. And, you know, I, I remember it was eerie and everyone was gone and you couldn't go to the playgrounds and it, it was scary. Um, and then, and then it became, as things started to progress and we got a little bit more information, people was, were still gone. It became somewhat enjoyable as we would go out to eat outside and no one would be there, which is like amazing when you have two little kids. <laughs> um, so what? So so for those not familiar with, with who you are and your work, because it's, it's been three years, uh, almost three years, uh, maybe start let's start there, your background, what you focus on and so on before we segue to your incredible new book, The Spark Factor. So I am a physician by training, but not a normal doctor because I left my residency after my my internship and I got my license and I started my own practice and I built my own um, sort of philosophy of health around health span, health span extension. And I started working in Silicon Valley, working with executives, investors, and entrepreneurs because they were the ones who were willing to pay for health. And they wanted to get all the labs on their bodies and they wanted to biohack. And that was like a thing really early on in my career. It was kind of a trend that was happening in Silicon Valley. And then I also kind of decided to move outside of the mainstream system pretty early as a result of watching all of these cracks and facets of it just like from the inside out. I was like, whoa, this system is not not properly designed. Um, I was really concerned about it. And I just felt like it was really, really about it. It's really just a sickness billing industrial complex designed to bill and code for disease and to manage care and to keep you in the system. But I was like, I want my patients to get so healthy that they don't need me. And I want them to be able to adapt and self-manage in the face of adversity. That's really what I think health is about. And so I just was like, I'm going to follow my truth, whether it be, whether I end up right or not, I just felt a deep sense of like, I, I want to study the first principles of health. And I just went for it, you know, with, with a little fairly fearlessly, but also like, 
I, I just, I just had a gut feeling that I, I was right. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm right and they're wrong. Um, and then funnily enough, like it was really hard early on in my career because my family didn't believe in me. A lot of my friends were like, we don't know what you're doing, but like, go for it. Um, and I was just like, I'm going to study health and I'm going to figure out what health is about. And that led me to like, basically working with clients and working with startups for about 10 years. And I worked for, for over 50 companies in doing clinical research, scientific marketing, product development, um, you name it. I've worked with biotech companies, wearable tech companies, digital health companies, food, tech, food companies, supplement companies. And I've, I, I've loved coming into these companies and helping them create logic behind the systems that they're building. Um, and then from there, I got asked to teach at Stanford and that was like a huge honor. Uh, for three years, I got to teach there and I taught a course on health span extension. And it was funny because I never got into Stanford, but they let me teach there. And I was like, once I looked up like how hard it is to become a teacher at Stanford, it's arguably more competitive than getting in because there's so few professors and so few lectures. There's only like a couple thousand people teaching there. And so I was like, wow, this is a massive honor. And also, did they read my resume? <laughs> did they see where I came from? But I built a reputation for being an, in, being an innovator. And um, after three years of wonderful experiences with Stanford, I decided to move to Austin. And Austin has like a really incredible biohacking community and burgeoning health community. And it's just kind of like, it's weird. Like saunas and cold plunges are just normal here. Like everybody has them. All the gyms have them. And it's in biohacking is like a social activity in Austin, which is cool. So um, I wrote this book, The Spark Factor. I started writing it actually in 2019 at a meditation retreat. I know you're supposed to write the meditation retreats, but I wrote out an outline of a book I wanted to write. And then I got um, a, uh, an agent in 2020. And then I got a book deal in 2021. And then I got um, the book finished by 2022. Now it's being published in 2023. So here we are today. Well, congratulations. It's been a ride. Uh, you know, so you mentioned working in the Valley with CEOs, entrepreneurs, and with the focus on biohacking and health span. And it seems for one reason or another, the conversation on biohacking has definitely skewed towards men. Why do you think, although I think it's changing, why do you think that is? I mean, it's funny. Like I was talking to the founder of New Calm recently and he's like, yeah, we don't really know why, but like all of our clients are men and we really want to break into the female market. And I'm like, well, it, New Calm is a really cool biohacking tool for your mental health. And like, it's, it's definitely kind of got a male dominated brand. A lot of biohacking has been what branded. Is it, what does it do specifically? It's a eye mask and this crazy patch that induces the frequency of GABA and then a specific type of frequency based binaural beat that they've patented to shift the body from sympathetic to parasympathetic. And they can actually induce reliably different brain um, frequency states based on their different modes of their app that they have. So, um, one of my good guy friends was like, Hey, if you want to, cause one of my goals this year is to optimize my HRV. And I've already gotten it up pretty significantly higher from just changing some of my recovery practices, but I really want to boost it further. Yeah. Talk, talk to us. What do you do? I think that's a, that should be a goal for everyone. I mean, so yeah, a lot of people don't realize how important HRV is, but like I spent since 2014 studying, um, blood sugar. And I was like super obsessed with blood sugar. Right. And so I learned all the different ways to optimize blood sugar. And now my blood sugar like my hemoglobin A1C is like 4.7 and my fasting insulin is like three and like my fasting glucose is like 80. And so like I've gotten my blood sugar all very normal, like optimal ranges at this point, but they were not always that good. And then I realized that like, wow, somehow I've gotten my blood sugar perfect perfected. 
Um, but whenever my blood sugar would go wrong, it was not because of what I was eating. It was usually because of my stress levels. So I was looking at my stress levels and arguably the pandemic did kind of a number on my stress levels as well as everybody else I know. Um, and so I was like, I need to hack this because this is like a really important you know, facet of health is like your HRV is a very important indicator of your longevity. It's how body, how your body is able to adjust its heart rate to adapt to different stressors. And so uh, there's a bunch of different things you can do. There's mind body practices like gratitude journaling. I do a lot of loving kindness meditations before bed. I listen to classical music when I work. Um, I get massages regularly. I love spending time with friends and having dinner parties. I use PEMF mats from the company Centropix, and I'm getting one from Higher Dose soon. Acupressure mats are a cheap alternative. They're like 30 bucks, and they're just a great tool for improving your relaxation. Um, exercise, you know, I lift weights. I do, I like to bike. I do some yoga. Um, I haven't been doing as much intermittent fasting, but in general, I try to do around 12 hours. When I'm really under a lot of stress, I, I can't fast as easily. Um, and then circadian rhythms are really important. So your light, dark cycles, getting that bright sunlight in the morning and getting that dark room in the evening and getting proper amounts of rest is just so important and not watch, not looking at your phone super late at night. Um, and then, um, I don't really drink as much anymore because I just see that it really affects my HRV pretty badly. Like every time. Kills it. Yeah. Lack of hydration is really a big one people forget about too. So I'm constantly making elixirs. I have literally an entire elixir station in my home with teas, decaf coffee, regular coffee for people who drink it. I kind of go off and on regular coffee depending on my stress levels. Um, Mudwater sends me all sorts of great stuff. And like I, I'm constantly getting new drinks from companies to try out. So like I've got lots of things, lots of beverages. Um, and then sauna, my gym has sauna and cold plunge. It's another good one. It's kind of like a mitohormetic stressor. So it's a little bit of stress that makes you stronger. Um, and then making sure your room isn't too warm at night is really important, especially for men. Um, and then, you know, su certain supplements can help. So I've always been wondering why is CBD so popular in our country? And it turns out that it actually can improve oxytocin levels which is like the hormone of safety, trust, and love. And so it's like for surprised. I also take high dose fish oil, pharmaceutical grade. I use GABA, magnesium. I mean, I'm doing everything you can do right now. And like, it's all generally working. The, the one thing that's probably not gonna, the reality is, is that I've, I've, come to the, I've come to the understanding that, you know, I can run my body like a high performance race car, but you still will get the wear and tear, even if you do all the, even if you do all of the pit stops and recovery practices, like you still have to look at how hard you're running the car. And that's kind of like last year I was like running the car at all cylinders and I had to do a bunch of biohacking to fix my body. Like after I got COVID at Burning Man, I did five days of NAD therapy. And that was like a definitely not written about in the book because I wasn't really sure about it until I had done it. But that boosted my HRV pretty dramatically, um, surprisingly. So I'm now doing NAD patches from um, Anthony Gustin's new company, Ion Layer, which is a great alternative to IV because it's way cheaper and faster. But yeah, like breathwork practices. I love the app Othership. Um, and yeah, then some of the vagal, vagal you know, training. Um, there's a company called you know, I'm actually fr friends with uh, Stephen Porges, who invented polyvagal theory, and I'm getting his training for the safe and sound protocol. And it's a type of like neurofeedback that's used uses music to retrain your brain to calm itself down during stress state stressful states. So that I'm just trying everything now. I'm just like new calm. I'm doing I'm doing it all. Like I'm really like committed to changing my HRV. For me, in my experience, the the practices that have had the greatest impact size of meal oh yeah and 
late at night. Yeah, size of meal and timing of meal. And so if I have a dinner that's late and it's sizable, negatively impacts HRV. Alcohol is huge. If I have one one drink, maybe okay. Two drinks definitely impacts me. And I'm big. If I am stressed late at night, like if I get a bad email, then I'm like, oh no, this is going to affect me. Uh, and then the best practices with regards to sleep, make sure the room is cold and, and so forth. That always works. Um, and hydration is another big one. And it sneaks up, and it sneaks up on you. Uh, and it's a rub. You got you to front load your hydration because if you start hydrating later in the day, <laughs> you have to get up. To and you got to go pee. And pee all the time. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm going to come back. I, I want to come back to, because on the flip side of HRV is resting heart rate. Ideally, you want HRV going up. RHR going down. That's ideally what you want. Um, but I'm going to park that because I want to come back to the to the, the the men versus women because I think this is really important. And many of the the great biohackers out there who are focused on health span, for the most part, I think speak to a male audience. And men are men and women are, are I think fundamentally different. So I'm curious. In your opinion, what are some of the things with regards to the health span conversation that are out there and that women should focus on and maybe men shouldn't and vice versa? The big one for women is the fact that we have such crazy hormonal fluctuations throughout our life, right? And that changes our, I mean, it changes literally our experience throughout the month. And it's funny, I was talking to some friends about how like mo if men, men who date women or who are married to women you know, should really be monitoring their partner's cycles just to be able to predict how they're going to behave. <laughs> because like inevitably, like a few days before your period, you're just more irritable. You're more, you've got a shorter fuse. You're, you're more tired. You're more, you know, inward oriented. And then once you hit your follicular phase, you're like, you feel like a superwoman, you know? And it wasn't until I started really consistently tracking my cycle that I started trying to adjust my schedule for my cycle. Now it wasn't always possible, and I definitely suffered when I didn't listen to my body. But generally speaking, you know, I'm front-loading my my work to my follicular phase and my especially outward-oriented work, things that required me to travel a lot. And I try to be a little bit more respectful of my late luteal phase because I'm going to be more tired. I'm going to be more inward-oriented. I'm not going to feel as social. And I don't need to say yes to every social invitation when I just want to relax more. Um, but then our, the other thing is, is that our hormones are like literally changing throughout the month. And, um, and so we're going to be, you know, when, when our estrogen is higher and our progesterone is lower, we're going to be more carb sensitive. So at the beginning of the month, I can eat more carbs and I can hit harder personal bests in the gym. I can actually do harder workouts. But then once my progesterone levels start to rise second half of the month, I want to do more moderate intensity workouts because I'm going to be burning fat more efficiently. And so that's the fuel I want to use more effect, more effectively. So it's almost like you can literally tailor your diet and exercise to your, to your body. And you can actually thrive more despite your hormonal shifts. Um, but then there's also menopause and perimenopause, right? So like a lot of women are kind of flying blind throughout their, you know, their change of their life. And there's so many different biohacks you can do to master the change of your life, but yet we're not taught this anywhere. Um, so I do cycle mapping. I do, you know, I like to look at my hormones and just like measure a big, big piece of biohacking is measurement. And, you know, a lot of people just never get their labs done and they don't even know about functional lab testing. They have no idea what these things can offer or they don't even trust them because they're not mainstream diagnostic tests. 
but I'm not looking to diagnose disease. I'm looking to identify human function. Um, so when I look at a woman's body and I look at her labs and she comes to me and says, you know, gosh, I'm trying this and I'm trying that and they're not working. And I'm looking at her labs and, and I see, oh, this woman's got insulin resistance. You know, I'm like, hey, like the bigger issue here is the insulin resistance that's probably contributing to your hormone dysfunction. And we need to tackle that first, you know? On the other hand, there's other women out there that are just frankly under eating and over exercising and developing relative energy deficiency of sport. They're stopping their periods, they're over biohacking, and they're doing too many biohacks at the same time. And they are they, they, they often end up with really bad hormone dysfunction and or their periods just stop. So it's kind of like, you got to look at your body, like, where am I in my lifespan? Where am I in my hormonal cycle? Where am I at in terms of my blood sugar regulation? And how well is my body adapting to my external demands? So there's just a lot more to think about as a woman, unfortunately, than a man when it comes to our hormones. So what are, without going crazy on labs, so I go crazy, I get 28 vials of blood and I walk out of there. I'm like, oh my God, I did too many again, but, but I do it. What, what are some of the labs that women should be doing that that probably they're not doing you know for example i was i was looking at my mother who's 73 her labs and i'm like oh god these just aren't really thorough they're, they're just basic and so i'm i'm trying to get her set up to do stuff not like i do but like a little bit more thorough so like what are some of those labs that if you're going to a regular doc they're probably not doing with but you should demand they do you can't demand hey i want 28 vials of blood and that's crazy and not everyone's up for that but like what are, what are the couple that the handful if you will that people should probably say you know what i really want this done first of all it still blows me away the number of doctors that don't require vitamin d testing but given the fact that we're all going through a triple epidemic right now of rsv flu and covid you better believe that you're going to need to optimize your vitamin d and this also matters for people living in LA and, and Miami. Even if you get sunlight, I've still seen people with poor vitamin D absorption. So um, surprisingly, I check that on everybody and I replace that on everybody plus K1 and K2. Um, triglycerides are a really simple test that almost everybody's going to get. And my ranges are different than doctor's ranges, right? Like I'm looking for people to get less than 80 to 100 is ideal for me, but most doctors consider less than 150 as normal. And one of my female patients had triglycerides of 350. And I was like, what are you eating? She's like, well, lots of sourdough bread and lots of juice. And I'm like, okay, those have got to go. You know, those are refined carbs. And they're like, really? I'm like, if you if you want to avoid heart disease, yeah. Because <laughs> um, those high, you know, triglycerides are glycerol, which comes from glucose and fatty acids. So it's really important that you don't let those get too high along with looking at your fasting glucose, which is a marker of your liver's insulin sensitivity. So I like to see, you know, ideally, but like less, in, ideally in the 80s, um, 70s, 80s are fine for me for fasting glucose, but 90 to 100 is moderate risk in my book. And then greater than 100 is pre-diabetic. Um, fasting insulin, you know, this is one of the craziest things that doctors get wrong. But like, I, I really don't want to, I like to see people like three to 4.5. And I, you know, most doctors won't even bat an eyelash as long as it's like less than 20. <laughs> it's like, you know... I've seen people who have a fasting insulin of 11, totally normal blood sugar monitor, but lots of symptoms of insulin resistance. And so their body's compensating by increasing their insulin levels with, with, um, over time, you know, so it's, it's doing a good job compensating, but you don't want the, that insulin level to be high. 
Um, I also like to look at white blood cells because it's a good marker of like, you know, it's one of those things where you can, you can just see if a person is malnourished or they need more micronutrients and phytonutrients. So, um, you know, if you have a higher than average white blood cell, then it, I like it to say between two to five. And, you know, most people don't care if, as long as it's like, you know, in the normal range, but I like to see it a little bit lower as a, um, but not like obviously deficient or anything. And then CRP is a big one, right? So you're in, it's a marker of inflammation. Uh, ferritin levels for women is so key. Um, and men, because you can have high ferritin levels and have iron overload, not, not, you know, not realize it. And that would be treated by giving blood, but then low ferritin levels happen to so many women and it can affect your fertility and your energy levels because it's, it's your main storage protein for iron inside the cell. So I, I look actually care about ferritin more than a lot of iron studies. And then, you know, I could go on, but there's like homocysteine, folate, B12, oxidative stress markers. Are you methylating properly? Um, and then all the lipids, like I look at omega-3s and omega-6s along with your LP, your, your lipo, your um, LDL particle numbers, your ApoB, your HDL, and then your liver enzymes are key too. So let's liver, liver enzymes are important just to see like, do you need detoxification? Do you have issues with, you know, alcohol? Do you have issues with fatty liver? So those are generally the things. And then I, obviously there's a ton of hormones that I check. So I'm looking at growth hormone through IGF-1, DHEA, prolactin, cortisol, FSH, testosterone, estrogen, progesterone, and all of the thyroid hormones. You got all of them. Uh, <laughs> you know, on a personal note, our audience is probably sick of me saying this. You know, I, my homocysteine was 63. Dang. Yeah, exactly. And guess what it is now? Where? 10. That's awesome. All through supplementation. Yeah. And you probably, I mean, you got, you had to get that methylation cycle running properly. And, and it, it inspired me to create our supplement line. And my latest medical mystery, which no one can figure out, my iron is normal. And I had a full colonoscopy. I'm clean. Endoscopy and colonoscopy, my ferritin's low. And we just don't know. Like maybe I'm utilizing it. And it's one of those things. And the point I'm trying to make too with labs in the longevity and health span conversation. Cause I was talking, I was texting with the, with a friend of mine who she had very high homocysteine and it was like 30. I'm like, don't worry, you can get it down. I sent her our supplement. Don't worry about it. And it's not, it's, it's high, but it's not sky high, but you got to keep in mind with labs, something's always going to be off. Like you're never really going to have perfect blood work. And the moment you do, you may get hit by a bus. You know, <laughs> yeah. I mean, you got to be a human as well, you know. But going back to your ferritin levels, I would definitely look at your mineral status through like a hair minerals test. If you looked at your copper balance, everything was fine, and it was normal. But it was like something changed within like the last eighteen months. Who knows? But I'm just like, all right, I'll take an iron. You know. The other thing, the other random question would be, um, your like. I'm, I definitely am not an expert in this area, but have you looked for parasites? I had them a long time ago, so it's a good question. I may have some uh, either a parasite or maybe like a little bit of a yeast infection. Who knows? This is like my latest exploration I'm doing with Frank Lippman, who's my doctor, and I know you know. My, I'm really curious about parasites personally. I'm like, how? what's the best test for them? Because like... I, I think that they're more common than we realize. I also think that we're probably adapted to have them. So I'm just trying to figure those ones out. That's something that I'm, I'm curious 100%, about. 100%. Like a decade ago, I all of a sudden, I was like so fatigued. I was like wanting to nap. I had a little bit of anxiety and I'm not anxious at all. I had some like off stool 
movements. Like I, I was just like off. And I went to, before I went and saw Lippman, I went to some traditional doctors. I was like having tingling in my legs. I remember I went to a, a, a specialist to see if like something neurodegenerative was off. People kept on looking at me like I was crazy. And I felt awful. And I got to the point where I was really upset. I was like, just something's wrong. Like no one believes me. I'm not crazy. And I saw Frank and he said, I think you have a parasite. And I went to see a guy, he, he's deceased, uh, Brian Cahill in Manhattan, who's like an infectious disease doctor and or tropical medicine. He's like a total quirky guy and very polarizing. But he went in there and went right up, you know, right up the butt and took a sample. And sure enough, I had a parasite. Boom. And other friends, Seamus Mullen, I could go like a lot of other people in New York had a same thing, same guy, like a lot of people in New York. He was the go he was the go-to. Yeah. And it was and and I think one of the misconceptions is you don't have to go to a third world country. I didn't go anywhere. I went to salad bars. I got a parasite in Hawaii from not washing my veggies enough from the farmer's market. Salad bars. And I took a couple rounds of antibiotics and then months of supplementation. And I had to do it for a while and I finally got better. And I, and I said, to, wow, like I bet that there are so many people out there who feel terrible and are misdiagnosed. And his method uh, – because most people did the stool test and he didn't believe in that. Yeah. I mean, funny, like, I don't know if the stool tests are accurate or not because a lot of them can miss them. But it's funny because like my friends at BioOptimizers, I love this company because they have such great gut health products. And I'm like, can you just send me your Parasite Guardian? Because I just want to take it because I feel like it might help me because I feel like maybe I've picked something up. Um, my gut seems normal for the most part, but it definitely feels like more regular than it has in the past. And I just have like a intuition on this one, you know, but I wish there was like the perfect test for this, you know, like it seems like it's more based on symptomatology. Yeah. And it's one of those things where, again, there's nothing worse than feeling terrible and going into a doctor's office and they look at you and you're like, it's all in your head. Nothing's wrong. And it's such a terrible feeling. Most doctors are trying to diagnose life or death illnesses, you know, and or like, do you have hypertension? Do you have prediabetes? Do you have high cholesterol, which are all by the way, symptoms of loss of homeostatic capacity, loss of the body's ability to maintain the integrity of the structure, loss of the ability to have systems flexibility. And like, when you look at the body that way, these are not disease states. These are symptoms of the body losing its resilience, losing its ability to bounce back, losing its ability to adapt to the demands placed upon it, losing its energy capacity. And that was a major paradigm shift for my thinking about this stuff. Cause I was like always taught that these are just disease states, but I'm like, no, this is the body's, this is the body's lack of it, basically lack of health and manifest in inability to maintain normal endpoints. And I was like, and so why does that happen? And so I was always searching for like, what's the underneath, what's, what's underneath this. And that led me to the mitochondria. And it's funny cause like I, one of my guy friends, this guy, this, I don't know if you know this guy, his name is Ben Gibson. Don't know. I talk about him on all these podcasts because he was literally one of the big catalysts for me to understand um, mitochondria because he had transformed his health. And he was like this overweight investment banker turned absolute like he looks like a like a warrior. Like he's like this super tall, super ripped now, 
big wave surfer, biotech CEO. And like this guy went from like overweight, unhealthy to like super ripped and strong and like riding gigantic waves. And like also he's a yogi. And I was like, Ben, how did you do it? Like, what is your secret? And he's like, Molly, everything in health, you just have to fix the mitochondria. And I was like, what? And I was like, I know they are important, but I didn't know they were that important. He's like, yeah, they're like the, they're, they're the organelle of health. And I was like, okay, you're going to teach me everything. So he was one of those mentors who just agreed to let me sit with him and him talk. He would just talk to me for like hours. So he kind of started me on this path a few years ago, even before teaching at Stanford, where I was like, oh my gosh, health is capacity. It's the ability for our body to have enough energy to withstand stress and demands and to be able to maintain energetic function and also biosynthetic biosynthetic function. So but mitochondria don't just create energy. They actually help you create norepinephrine, dopamine, um, stress hormones, serotonin, sex hormones. They activate the inflammasome. They like literally play a role in immune system regulation. They're basically epigenetic modulators, which this is a lot of big words for, they basically decide where your energy goes and whether you are in a state of survival or a state of like thriving and flourishing and reproducing. And that was a that was another paradigm shift for me because I was like, oh my God, I see the body totally different now. And it's like, it's funny because like when you hang out with enough hippies, you're like, you hear like, oh, they're always like, everything is about energy. And you think it's this woo-woo thing, right? And then you like start studying the physics of the cell and you're like, wait, everything is about energy. <laughs> it's like all energy at the end of the day. Uh, on that note, how does one know if their mitochondria are healthy? Does it purely come down to, I feel energized and strong versus I feel lethargic. It's like, are you tired when you wake up in the morning? Are you like, do you have enough energy to meet your demands during the day? Right. Do you have, is your skin like emitting light? You know, this is another big one that people forget that you have autofluorescence. So your skin literally makes light. And, um, when I had COVID, my skin was gray and dull. And it was like, when you get an infection, you, it cuts the energy supply because those infections get inside the cell and they hijack your machinery and they literally make themselves. They literally take over your metabolism to make themselves, which is what a virus is. That's how they win, you know? But fortunately I, I went and got ozone during COVID and that made a massive difference in me, um, in my recovery, which I write about in the book. But um, other things are things like, you know, the strength of your hair and your nails. Um, you know, another big one is, is just the, when I had insulin resistance, I had a lot more breakouts and I had more wrinkles. And I actually have like better skin now than when I had insulin insensitivity years ago. Um, hormone dysfunction is a pretty good sign. Um, and also like, remember, like your body will naturally want to direct resources to survival if it feels under threat. So hormone dysfunction is in some ways an adaptive response because your body's going to be like, why am I going to reproduce when I need to survive? So it's going to up that cortisol. It's going to lower that testosterone and lower that estrogen. And that's, that's like, a, that's an adaptive response, but it's just, we're not supposed to live in chronic stress. Right. But then these bigger markers, like your blood pressure getting dysregulated, your heart rate rising, your HRV dropping, your blood sugar rising. These are all symptoms of systematic breakdown and it's going to be slow. And it happens very insidiously over many, many years until you end up really sick one day. So, you know, I don't want to get high blood pressure. I don't want to get um, diabetes. I don't want to get dementia. I don't want to get heart disease. And I certainly don't want to get cancer. So these are all metabolic conditions. Another thing people don't realize is that a lot of mental illness is actually metabolic in nature. And I, this book by Christopher 
um, Palmer, MD. I, I literally keep on I'm promoting his book more than I am on my own podcasts that I'm on. But his book is like the literally if my book's all about how do you optimize your lifestyle for better metabolic health and better energy and better hormones. But his book is all about how do you optimize your energy for better brain health. So he breaks down how mitochondrial dysfunction precedes things like ADHD, depression, anxiety, certain um, seizure disorders, certain psychotic disorders, and how he's been treating psychiatric conditions with lifestyle and with metabolism. So, you know, arguably, if you have any of these modern chronic diseases, you probably have some mitochondrial dysfunction. And, you know, there's a lot of mitochondrial microbiome crosstalk. So keep in mind that if you have gut dysfunction, that can actually contribute to mitochondrial dysfunction. And that's important to pay attention to first and foremost, especially because a lot of people have just generally high levels of inflammation in their body because their guts are dysfunctional. So are there things in addition to the standard, you know, get good sleep, exercise, eat right, and we'll get into how you think about defining defining that, manage your stress levels, all the all the things, so to speak. Are there things, is there something in addition to those things that are very specific towards mitochondrial health that's like outside of living well? I want to help people conceptualize this concept called toggling mitohormetic stressors. So toggling means to go like a switch back and forth, right? Like a toggling, like a throttling, uh, you know, a, a car, but toggling like off and on, right? And then mito is mitochondria and hormetic is hormesis. So hormesis is stress that makes you stronger. So when you toggle mitohormetic stressors, you're literally sending the body signals to make more energy and also to recover from the stress. So a great example of this is sauna and cold plunge, right? Now I don't recommend very long cold plunges. Like a lot of people are way, like one of the biggest downsides of the biohacking community is people are like, well, if 30 minutes of sauna is good, then an hour must be better. And if like two minutes of, of cold plunge is good, then I should try 20 minutes. And like, that's not the, that is not what you need to do. In fact, it's a minimal effective dose is what you should be aiming for in all of these things. We had Mark Sisson on a while ago and he was telling a story about how he was doing a plunge and someone jumped in and, and tried to, you know, tried to impress Mark by going longer, you know, going longer. And Mark's like, what are you doing? You're hurt yourself. <laughs> I've seen yeah. people break their HPA axis through doing 20 minute cold plunges and literally coming to me completely burned out from cold. <laughs> and it's like they literally exhausted their cells by overstressing them. So this is the one very important thing about every one of these stressors. It's you want enough to make you stronger, but not enough to break you. If someone's listening and like, all right, I'm going to give it a shot. What, what do you think to start? 30 seconds, minute? like. I mean, 20 minutes of sauna, two minutes cold plunge, you know, but even just starting with one minute of a cold plunge or just starting with a cold shower. If you're intimidated by the cold plunge. Uh, cold showers are terrible. Cold showers are terrible. They work, but they're terrible. <laughs> I, I do know they're terrible, but I also think that they get easier the more you do them, you know? And it's like, and you don't need to do them for super long. Um, but then like another one is is things like sunlight, like light, the light and dark cycles, right? Getting outside, getting that sunlight in your face, and then getting that dark, dark room. And, and that's really important. Um, a little bit of hit training, like five minutes of hit training, and then resting, you know, um, people go out and they do like berries five days a week and orange theory five days a week. And I'm like, literally, if you go over 150 minutes of high intensity interval training a week, you will damage your mitochondria. There's new research on this. So I'm always trying to tell people do less for better 
outcomes. Like you don't need to go to Orange Theory every day. So Taco, I think that's so interesting. Let's spend a moment on that. Like overdoing it. How do you, so is it 150 minute? Like is, is that 150 minutes of hit training? I'm talking like high intensity exercise. So how do you define that? It's terms? usually by your heart rate. Um, so it's there's like different zone zones. Two, zone three. How, like, I believe it's like zone. It's typically like you're at 90%, like 70, I think it's like 70 to 90% of your heart, maximum heart rate. So I'm talking, you're like, you're up there, right? You're puffing and puffing. Now, if I go bike ride and I'm, and I'm like really pushing it. I can get 150 minutes of hit. Like I, I use my aura ring to just measure. So, my, uh, yeah. okay. so I can see like how many, how many, um, how many minutes am I getting per week? And if I, if I go above 150 minutes of high intensity exercise, I feel it. My body is like, it needs a lot more recovery. So I'm, you can do literally unlimited amounts of moderate intensity exercise and you won't hurt your body. But when it comes to the high intensity stuff, that's when people start to break. And so the athletes out there need to be the most careful because it's all about recovery. It's like the, the act of exercise and the act of recovery are literally just as important. So one of the things I made a mistake of last year, and I had to, when I, when I was testing my cortisol last year and it was like, it was too high. <laughs> and I was like, uh Oh, um, I was like, what am I not doing? And I was like going through all my lists of things. And I was like, you're not doing any of your recovery practices. What are you thinking? You're writing a book on X on biohacking. Take your own advice. So, you know, I had to go, like, I, I took all my biohacking tools out and I just started using them. You know, I started using my, my PEMF mats, my acupressure, my acupressure mats, my, my Theragun, my, I used to, I did more sauna, less cold plunge. Like I was just trying to do, I switched off of coffee to mud water. I was doing everything I could to, to like get back into the balanced state. And it's great because I didn't burn out, thank God. But I, Luca, like, I, I think it's an important point because people in our world tend to take it too far. They get excited and they go too far. And if you think about it, 150 minutes a week, so it's like 20 plus minutes a day at 80, 90% of your heart rate. And for those who don't wear these, you know, the, the warp of the aura or Apple Watch, like the way I think about it is zone two, which is okay. That's the sweet spot. That's your, you can have a conversation, but it's a little difficult. But that zone three or four where you're 80, 90%, you're not talking. Not happening. <laughs> not at all. And the funny thing is, is like when I'm on my e-bike, I can get up to there. I can literally, I love, I love my e-bike because you, so you can go so fast and you can be like literally pushing it and still going fast. And like, I can still get my heart rate up even though I'm using an electric bike. Like it's crazy. So I highly recommend it for people who are like resistant to aerobic exercise. There's research that suggests that even if you, if you use an e-bike, you actually exercise more because it's psychologically, there's less of a burden attached to it. So your body says, well, this is going to be easier. And so I actually find myself getting more cardio using my e-bike than my other bike because I like, because psychologically it's easier. So like, I'm always trying to get my brain to like do things for me to make my life easier. <laughs> like you, brains are always trying to optimize for energy efficiency, but I also know that I do need, like I, I was doing just weightlifting and not enough cardio. And I realized that my heart rate could be a little bit lower. And so it was like in the upper fifties and now I'm trying to get into like the lower fifties and I'm, I'm just going for optimal, you know, like it's my job. Um, but a lot of, a lot of the car, a lot of the weightlifters out there are like, you don't need any cardio. And I'm like, actually you do need cardio. Your heart needs to move, you know? So I'm not really like, as, I'm not really part of this weightlifting world where it's like, you know, but they are trying to put muscle on and like, but I, I, I'm going for lean muscle, you know? So we're going to stay, I think that's an important point. But before we go there, I'm curious, you know, you mentioned overdoing it on cold plunge. You mentioned overdoing it 
on cardio. What, what are some other examples of things that you find, let's go there, that we're overdoing in our world? Yeah. I mean, the big one is, okay, look, I, I screwed up once. I, I can only speak to these things because I I've remember made these when mistakes. I talked to you in 19, you're like, oh, 28 hours, no big deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I was like so... I mean, I was like, so like, I can do anything a man can do. And then I was like, and then I, here's the thing I had done, I was living in Japan and I saved a lot of money doing this because J- Japan food in Japan is so expensive, but I was fasting every other day for a month in Japan. And that's pretty stupid, but I did it anyway. And I was just like, you know, I was just like not eating every other day. I'm just going to pause and just say what, what, what you just articulated having a change of opinion and calling yourself out is a rarity in our world. And, and I want to take a moment, no one does it and say, that's, that's great because many people in our space have a point of view and don't back away from it, period. One of my friends was like, How, do you know any healthy vegans? And I was like, actually, I know like five. And they're like, what? And I was like, yeah, I'm paleo, but like I have vegan friends that are really healthy and they're thriving. And they're like, that's impossible. And I'm like, no, it's totally possible. In fact, people have asked me about my book and they're like, do you recommend a diet for everybody? And I'm like, actually, no, I'm trying to help people personalize their nutrition so they can find the diet that works for them. And they're like, what a revelation. I'm like, so against the dietary dogma of like, I hate the carnivore plant-based wars. I'm like, the world is so divided as it is. Do we really have to like use food to divide us further? So I'm just a full on omnivore. I love meat. I love vegetables. I love fruit. I love nuts and seeds. That's my diet for the most part. And I don't eat a lot of grain and beans. I just, I do some beans, but I don't eat tons of them. I don't eat a lot of grain. Um, and you know, it works for my body, but it's not what I think everybody else should do, but it's worked for me. And, um, it's funny cause I was reading Gwyneth Paltrow an interview she gave recently and she had, she used to be very, um, she used to eat a lot more quinoa nuts. She used to eat a lot more quinoa grains and beans. And then her metabolism started to shift as she hit perimenopause. And so she shifted to paleo and found that it was working better for her diet and her weight maintenance. And it's like, she even admitted to like changing her diet. So like, I I think it's important that people realize that something that works for you for a period of time might be a tool to get you healthier. But once you get to a healthier state, you may need something else. So like when I was experimenting with fasting, I needed to lower my fasting glucose because my fasting glucose I felt was too high. And so I was working on optimizing my insulin sensitivity. And once I got to a higher state of insulin sensitivity, it was like my body just said, you don't need as much fasting. You're good. And now I do like 12 to 14 hours typically. And then maybe if I'm going like, like if I'm going to go on a long-term travel, like I've got a couple flights to Europe um, and I'm going to Dubai in a couple weeks. And I, I'm, it's going to be really hard because I, I, I know that there's good food on certain flights, but I try to avoid eating on airplanes because it really helps with resetting those circadian clocks of your cells and you get less jet lag. So going, going back to the thing on, on fasting though, like if you are sedentary, diabetic, pre-diabetic, PCOS, insulin resistant, um, overweight or obese, you may find that if you can be, if you're metabolically flexible enough to tap into your fat stores, uh, which I would typically recommend before fasting to start with some ketosis just to get fat adapted. But if you're fat adapted or you're generally able to fast, it is a phenomenal tool in the toolbox for metabolic inflexibility and for metabolic health for people who need it. But for people who are already metabolically healthy, normal weight, normal blood sugar, 
you don't need to push yourself into really low blood sugar levels. Like it's not necessary. You need to stay where you're at. And if you're an athlete and you're already exercising a lot enough, like you probably need to eat more. <laughs> like a lot of athletes under eat and under eat protein. And so, you know, to me, it's like, who are you? What, what is your needs? What are your goals? And what are you trying to optimize for? And so for me, I was trying to optimize for better metabolic health. And then I got hit with a shitload of stressors in 2019. This was like February and then March, April, May. Massive breakup, massive business readjustment. I had fundraised for a company with a guy I was dating and I left the company because he and I had a disagreement on um, equity. And so um, it was a really challenging experience in my life. One of the hardest times I've ever experienced. And through that experience, I grew immensely. I learned a lot about myself and I became much more resilient, but fasting was absolutely impossible after that. Um, so I was, I was like able to do it, but I was not able to do it long, very, very long. Like I had prior and it was cause my body was in a state of threat. My body needed to hold on to calories. My body wanted to survive a stressful period of time. So another good reason to not fast is being under enormous stress. Like that's a time for just regular meal times, consistency, you know, maybe a vacation. You know, you mentioned lean muscle mass, which is a you know focus for me, and I think a focus for a lot of people right now. And if you're doing an extended fast, and I would say like 16, 18, or beyond, it's almost impossible to get enough protein during the day. Get this. So I had this mirror that was measuring my my body composition. Um, and it was like it was called, I think the company was called Mirror. Um, I'm trying to think of what the company was called, but anyway, you stand, you stood on this thing and it would rotate you around and it would do a full body scan. And I did it before and after the month long, every other day fasting. And what I noticed was, oh my God, believe it or not, I lost mostly body fat, but that month I was not under a lot of stress. And then the next month, as I was trying to continue this pattern of like eating, I started losing muscle mass because my stress levels were increasing. And what does stress do? It increases cortisol. What does cortisol do? Cortisol literally makes you insulin resistant and will shunt all glucose to the brain. And so my body was eating my protein to make glucose from my brain. And I was like, well, that was a great learning experience. You know, like it was really, I could literally see it directly happening in my body. So that's another reason not to do a lot of fasting during um, high stress states, because you're not going to get the benefits um, that you would imagine you'd be getting. So, I mean, the other thing we should probably talk about is like protein, Cause a lot, I think, I think generally speaking, like at least men who weight lift seem to do a pretty darn good job at eating enough protein, but women often under eat protein. And it's a big, big issue as we get older because of frailty. And I see so many really lean women heading into their perimenopausal and menopausal years and their muscle mass is not go is not, is not growing. And once you hit 65, you're wasting muscle and you actually need 1.6 grams per kilogram. And I, I, in fact, I recommend that for most people. It's hard to get. Um, but if you, especially if you are weightlifting consistently, you do need to eat more protein. And it's not like, it's not intuitively that easy to do. You actually have to track it for a while before you can really get the hang of it. And like when I was doing consistent, all right, so confession, it was a lot easier for me to be super healthy when it wasn't like the two months prior to the, the three months prior to this book launch. So arguably the book launch has, it's ironically affected my health a little bit because I have not been as consistent with everything. But last summer when I was like really great shape, um, I was eating enough protein. I was working out consistently and my body was banging. And then once we got to like three months before the book, everything just started just like slipping. And I was like, oh my God, this is not optimal for 
this is not optimal for this book launch. But the truth is, is that like launching a book is like having another startup. And so it's just crazy how much it stresses you out. But I'm grateful for the whole experience, but I'm just like so ready for this book to be published so I can get back into like my normal habits. But it is like, it is a challenge when you're traveling to like get as much protein as you need. When you're at home and you're consistent with your schedule and you're one place all the time, so much easier. But my my travel schedule has been bananas. And so it's been a little bit more of a challenge. Well, you also, you know, brought up men tend to do a little bit better here if they're lifting and getting protein. And as we think about differences between women and men and longevity, I do think if I were to generalize, men tend to be better. And I think a lot of the conversation with women in our space, it's a little bit more holistic, if you will, has been around more, uh, you know, yoga, Pilates, less strength training, but I think it's coming back and I think that's good, but it's not in the context of vanity. Although look, if you, there is that component, obviously, but it's about, it's the strong bones. It's about perimenopause. You mentioned 65. There's that scary stat, which I've repeated here and I'll, I'll repeat it again. One out of four people fall after the age of 65. If you fall once, you're twice as likely to fall again. If you fall and break your hip, you have a 30 to 40% chance of dying within one, one year. I'll just pause there. And how do you, how do you, how do you avoid that? You lift, you maintain lean muscle mass, uh, to you, you develop motor skills. So maybe if you're falling, maybe you like can balance, you can be flexible, grab something, break your fall and you develop armor in the form of muscles. You strengthen your, your bones. And how do you get there? Protein. So protein synthesis and you need a lot and it's, and it's difficult because a lot of people also lean vegetarian and that's okay, but it's hard to get that amount. It's really tough. I mean, it can be done, but my, my biggest complaint for some of these movies on plant-based eating is they don't provide you with any plans to follow these athletes, right? It's like, oh, these athletes are amazing. They're plant-based. They have nutritionists. They have teams. They have chefs. They have people preparing all of their meals. Same thing for all those movie stars out there that are plant-based. Like they've got entire teams of people making their food. So what about everyone else? You know, like I'm not saying it can't be done, but it definitely is harder. Without question, it's more difficult. When you look at like, you know, chicken, for example, and the amount of protein, the amount of leucine. So you're there. If you look at all the other plant-based sources, you look at protein and you look at the amount of the leucine, you need that two and a half grams of leucine to get to, to is use it or lose it with muscle protein synthesis. We did a podcast with Don Lehman, who's like a legend on protein. I encourage everyone to listen to go deep on this, but it's hard. It's funny as well, because there's so many longevity experts like David Sinclair and Walter Longo who are like anti-protein because they're like, mTOR, mTOR, it's going to kill you. And it's like, if you're lifting weights and you're exercising, you're using that protein to repair your muscles. My concern is that the people who are sedentary, who aren't using the protein are like, you know, let's say there's some cancer growing, maybe you're going to grow it more, you know, like, I think it's really important to direct the, the, the nutrients to something and ideally to muscle protein synthesis. Um, and to also just recognize that like, there is this pervasive belief that like women are supposed to be small and like not strong, like, like this idea that like lean is better and like model-esque is like, there's actually like, sadly, because of semaglutide, the lean physique is coming back and like the Kardashians are on it and Elon is on it. Everyone's on it. Semaglutide for everyone. And don't be wait, wrong. Wait, what's, I think, what's semaglutide? Oh, the GLP-1 inhibitors. 
What? Uh, I, I, oh my God, these weight loss. I have no idea. These weight oh, loss the weight peptides. Loss drug. The peptides. Oh, yeah. So there's what Govi. And here, don't get me wrong. I actually think these are actually very awesome for people who really can't lose weight. Like they will inevitably lead to weight loss because of insulin sensitivity. But the problem is, is that now we have everyone who's thin wanting to get thinner and thinner and thinner. And so the, the one of the downsides of these medicines is they can actually lead to loss of muscle mass. So if you're on these meds, you still have to go with lift weights and work out, or you're going to lose your muscle mass, you know? Well, to the, the, the protein comment, when I spoke to Lehman on the show, you know, the message isn't, you know, you, you still have to lift, you still have to do resistance training. You can't like protein your way out of not exercising. Like you need to do resistance training and then have the protein. And we tend to just take things, the, pe people hear what they want. It's, oh, I got to have a lot of protein and then I'll be all good. I don't have to do as much resistance training. No, 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 no. You need to do the, the case, training. Obviously. Exactly. I mean, when I, when I'm doing consistently, when I'm in the gym consistently, my body just like snaps back into shape. And when I don't go to the gym, my body unfortunately snaps back out of shape. So it is about consistency. You know, your body's constantly adapting to the demands you place upon it and the stimuli it gets. So, um, it is what it is. Like you gotta, you gotta do the work. And that's the, I mean, that's the, that's the thing about our bodies. You're not just going to wake up one day and be like, all right, I'm there. I'm perfect. It's like, no, you got to maintain. And I, I mean, part of me is telling this to myself, you know, because we're always going through different phases of our lives. There's different aspects so like it, but consistency is really the secret. Um, I'm going to, I'm fortunately, I'm going to make, fortunately, I'm going to make the gym this evening and I'm staying in a place in New York that has a gym. So I should be able to make it this week. Um, but you know, even if you can't make the gym, at least getting some movement in when you're traveling, like, you know, you, you want to at least try to get some movement in and not, not be sedentary. So like I was doing a lot of walking when I was in LA last week and I definitely got my steps in, which is something, but I definitely didn't do the weightlifting that I would have liked to have done. So, you know, it does require thought and planning and, um, and, and it does, it does require prioritization, you know? So of all those things we've talked about, resistance training, walking, uh, high intensity interval training. It, how do you think about all of these things in the context of longevity and health span? How, how would you rank them? Okay. So here's some interesting stats for you and a surprise answer to this that I don't think even I would have admitted, you know, a few years ago. Which I appreciate. Yeah. So like one in seven men and one in 10 women have no friends. And loneliness is literally worse for your body than smoking, drinking, sedentary behavior, and obesity. And so what's wrong with this situation? Well, we just went through a massive epidemic and most people were isolated. And people have not come out of that. People are still isolating themselves. And loneliness is not supposed to be an epidemic. It's supposed to be a hunger signal that's, or a pain signal that's supposed to bring you closer to a tribe. But if you don't have a tribe, then you're in this ruminative loop of despair. And so what are we seeing? Diseases of despair. We're seeing a lot of suicides. We're seeing mass shootings. We're seeing um, mental illness. And the fundamental truth is that we need social connection to thrive in this world. And men and women actually respond to isolation differently, even surprisingly. Women are slightly more resilient to social isolation than men because we can produce more oxytocin naturally when we're alone than men can. So this is one of the theories I have on why we only see male mass shooters. Um, you know, I think if you look at most of these guys, it's almost always some massive psychosocial crap going on in their lives. Usually these kids are abused or neglected or they have mental illness 
And these, like the, the most recent one in LA, they're pretty sure it was a man going after his wife. And so like domestic abuse is a really big issue. Elder abuse is a big issue. Child abuse is a big issue. So we have a really a crisis of, of love, you know, like people are not loving one another and there's a lot of despair and there's a lot of pain as a result. And so I literally started a company called Adamo Bioscience and Adamo means to fall in love in Latin because I wanted to study the science of love. I wanted to figure out how do we measure it? How do we amplify it like this? If we don't have religion to turn to, then where is the science behind why love heals and also why lack of love causes so much disease? So, um, you know, like there was an 80 year study um, on men and their progeny for, in, at Harvard. We just had them. That's the pod. That's the pod ah, that dropped today. Hell yeah. yeah. Okay. Everyone go listen to that. But um, as well as this one, but basically, you know, social connection is the greatest factor we know in longevity and happiness. So those, those positive social relationships require nurturing, require work, require, you know, the effort. And I just don't think we prioritize it like we do weight like we do food, like we do movement, we, like we do stress management. We just don't prioritize our relationships and we kind of relegate it to like our therapist's office. It's like, you know, people go and talk about the problems with their therapist, but really what we need is we need a, a, a social network that we can turn to, to support us. Not, not the social no, no, no. network. <laughs> this is the thing I try to explain to people. So like, get this, I won't be able to conceptualize um, social disconnection and, and, and social media as a result, like what people are turning to is social media. And it's like processed social connection. It's like processed food. So it's like you're getting the connection, but you're not getting the nourishment. Same thing with pornography. It's like processed sex. You're not really getting sex. You're getting the dopamine, but you're not getting the oxytocin you're supposed to get from your partner, from the touch, from the human connection. And so just like we need to phase out, you know, and like we don't eliminate completely processed foods. I've got some, you know, per, some processed foods from companies that I'm friends yeah. with in my in life. My, processed food happens, but I don't eat it for every meal. It's not what I live on. Like if I lived on it, I would be sick. And so what do we have? We have like all of these women and men in the world that are not connecting and that are using social media to connect and they're not getting that really in-person connection. So they're not getting that nervous system nourishment that comes from basically oxytocin and vasopressin. So what are these hormones doing? So oxytocin is the hormone of safety, trust, and love. And women are more oxytocin dominant. So oxytocin plays a role in how we connect to our partners during sex. It's released during orgasm. It's also released during cuddling, during hugging. When someone massages you or tickles your back, when you hold a dog or a baby, you get oxytocin. And when you just, even just, you're just like nice to a person and you're affectionate to someone or just give someone words of affirmation, you get oxytocin back. Now, vasopressin. Well, actually, before we talk about oxytocin, let's also talk about what it does for humanity. So when a mother's giving birth, it requires oxytocin. When she's breastfeeding, it requires oxytocin. When she's tending to and nurturing her child, it in the attunement, emotional attunement releases oxytocin. So when a parent is putting a screen in front of their child, every time they cry, then the parent is teaching their child to self-soothe with media. And the, so they're not actually getting that attunement. So they're actually going to develop behavioral issues, which is a really big problem in society today. Um, on top of that, we also have oxytocin for our social network. So when I have friends over and we're all hanging out in my living room and there's like people cuddling and people snuggling and hanging out, like that's oxytocin getting released. Now on the flip side, what happens when you lose love and you lose a family member, you lose, a, you know, you lose, you get ostracized from a community, you feel awful. 
right? Like you feel like you're being cut off from your life supply because we literally evolved oxytocin to bring us together and to actually help us attach to one another. And so feeling detached and feeling disconnected feels like a threat to your existence. Um, on the same, at the same time, vasopressin is men are more vasopressin dominant. Now, men and women both have these in each of us, but men are generally more vasopressin dominant, which means men are really designed to help um, defend the tribe, to feel aggress against, you know, um, neighboring tribes that we're trying to invade. So when we see people defending their homeland, that's vasopressin during during war. It's like literally the defense aggression and protection. The reason why I'm trying to teach people this stuff is because I'm like, fundamentally, if you want to survive in this crazy complex world, you need survival skills. And so fasting actually is a useless tool if like, you know, if you if you can't eat for a few days, right? Because you're like a natural disaster. But just as important is your social network. So I really work on my social connectivity hard because I know that these social relationships are what are going to keep me alive if things, you know, go crazy. Um, and I don't think enough people look at look at life this way. And I think because the, this has been so overlooked by our Western culture, because our culture is so individualistic and not about the community, not about, um, I mean, Eastern cultures are far more about the collective than ours. I think we need something in between. We need our individualism, but we need our community and we need, we need to connect with one another if we are going to be able to thrive in the face of adversity. So if meaningful IRL connection is underrated, what do you think is overrated? So there is this multi-trillion dollar beauty industry. And if you actually look at it, it's designed for uh, partnership and attraction and, and sexuality. So it's like what's driving a lot of the beauty industry is this primitive programming to be attractive, to find a partner. But I think it's kind of like selling us this false, I think, I think appearances can be really deceiving. I think there's a lot of people who use makeup and use appearances to cover up poor health and to seek connection and love because they think that it's an external, externally um, found facet of existence. But literally like the most beautiful thing in the world is when you are a kind and good person to others and you're generous and you're forgiving and you're grateful and you're, and you're, you give your time. And I think there's this like, I think because we have lost a lot of our religious values because people aren't going to church as much, there's, um, there's this sort of like, we've kind of converted everything to this very superficial layer of love in our community, in our society. And I just, it's fascinating to me just how much money goes into the beauty industry and the clothing industries as though that's what makes us attractive enough to be loved. And to me, it's just, that's none of this is going to matter if we're in, if we're in like world war three, like none of that fucking matters. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just making a point. Like I never thought I would say this out loud, but like when I was learning how to fast years ago, I was like, I wonder why people learned, I wonder why fasting is part of society. And I was like, well, what, what's, what, what's some reasons why I should try to encourage people to fast? And I was like, well, I guess they get stuck somewhere and they can't eat for a few days. But like, we all just went through like multiple natural disasters in our country and multiple, and like a major pandemic and supply chains shortage shortages. So like, arguably there's certain things that do matter to survival in a crazy world. But I just, I think this whole like, superficial stuff is um, surprisingly less less important than we realize. Well, I think that the conversation on spirituality is very interesting and, and it doesn't necessarily have to be organized religion. You know, you mentioned mental health. We had Lisa, Dr. Lisa Miller on the show over a year ago, who I absolutely love, uh, 
who wrote this incredible book called The Awakened Brain and essentially studies spirituality and does these incredible studies on spirituality and essentially found that when a parent or a grandparent has a strong sense of spirituality along with the child, the child is five times less likely to experience depression. So 80% protected. What? Yeah. And this is a real, real legitimate study. And, and how she defines, and she goes through a process, I mean, we talk about it in the show, like how she defines spirituality. It has nothing to do with organized religion. And it's this idea of, you know, uh, you know, gratitude, uh, believing in something bigger than yourself, uh, being ethical. And I encourage people to listen to the show. But if you think about spirituality in the context of the mental health epidemic and kids uh, and loneliness and all of the things we just talked about, we we don't spend enough time talking about that. Yeah. I mean, it's also protective for the grandparents' mental health too, you know? So... I think that's also ignored is sort of the bi-directional relationship. Like it's likely that we evolved longevity to enhance the survival of all fat. Like it's likely we, we like evolved to live long, like because of our interdependence on one another. And like these social bonds are what likely lead to longevity in a lot of family members. So, you know, I'm very fortunate. I have a really tight knit family, but it's surprising how that's being lost, how that's like, how that value in society has been shifted and how many women I know who are just choosing to have families without partners. Um, it's surprising how many women I know who are doing this now. Um, and I don't know what it says about men today. Men got to get their, men have to get it together. I mean, we need to really glorify thought. We need to really start looking at fatherhood as something that should be respected deeply. And motherhood is something that's sort of like a real job. Like we're not, we don't look at these as jobs, but the, they, sh I mean, frankly, they should be subsidized by the government. They're such hard jobs. Like to me, this is just crazy to me, like how, you know, we don't, these, these traditional values are, are being lost in a lot of ways. And it's like, why they were, they, they weren't bad to begin with. They, they worked, but um, yeah, I don't know what I would do without my family. Like I see friends of mine who don't have strong parents and don't have strong connections to their parents and have really challenging relationships with the parents. And I know it affects, I know it affects them. I know I've seen it affect their health. I've seen it affect their ability to cope. And, you know, not everybody gets, good luck in this world. But you can also find, I mean, you can find mentors that can serve as kind of surrogate grandparents, you know, like you can find people that are older than you and really just ask them, Hey, I'd love to love to connect with you regularly. You know, like I've found so many mentors that are in their eighties and seventies that are amazing resources. And because like, you know, three of my grandparents, two of my grandparents are dead and three of them are dead. And one of them is in a nursing home. And, um, so I don't, I don't, I, I haven't had a lot of grandparents giving me that their time and their wisdom, but I've sought it elsewhere. And I think you can do the same thing with, you know, with just mentors and with, um, with other friends and family. But look, there's something to be said for age and experience and wisdom. Wisdom. Yeah. You know, and unfortunately I think ageism is very real. I know. And it's so stupid because it's like, literally it's like saying that like this super valuable knowledge is just worthless. It's like, no, it's bullshit. Like it's obviously not true. And I don't know. I see my sister um, who's married with kids and she has this amazing 
you know, profession. She's an artist. She's actually a really successful oil painter. And there's no way she could do her job without having her husband's family help take care of the kids during the day. And it's like, there's so much interdependence in that family. And, um, and she has this flourishing career because she has all this social support. So, you know, I look at that and I'm like, man, that's winning. (laughs) Multi-generational living is a hallmark of the blue zones. Yeah. Community connection and multi-generational living. Like this is linked to longevity for a reason. All this oxytocin, all those social bonds, all that connection. Feel, it makes you feel safe. It makes you feel like you have someone to turn to when something goes wrong. Other than pick up the book, which I encourage everyone to do, what what is the one thing that we should all incorporate tomorrow, no matter where we are in our journey, that's going to have a great impact on our health span? I think when it comes to loving others, um, starting with loving yourself might be the biggest challenge. And you know, I, I don't think enough people realize the role of self-love and health because it's just not properly written about, you know, it's not really popularized. And, you know, people are like constantly throwing out the word narcissism all over, like everyone's a narcissist. Well, there's a real big difference between narcissism and like authentically having self, self-compassion. And um, Kristen Neff's work is really good on self-compassion. She's got a great, really great questionnaire. And like, I think if you, if you find that you, you have a challenge with your relationships, then starting with working with yourself is actually a really good starting point. Um, because if you we, we we don't teach kids how to love themselves, we teach them how to dislike themselves so they buy more stuff. And um, and I just think that like love is the frontier of medicine. And you know lo- this whole concept of health and care, like it's supposed to create health and it's supposed to care about you. So I'm really interested in the caring side because I feel like I, I understand the health piece now. But this whole piece of caring and longevity is fascinating to me. And so starting with oneself is really a good, good, a good starting point, you know, just working on who, who you are and loving who you are and working on your attachment wounds and working on any parent wounds you have and working on any wounds you have with yourself. Um, trauma, you know, in the psychedelic movement is a big frontier and there's a right way and a wrong way to use psychedelics. But I do think that they can improve one's relationship to oneself if used properly. So um, actively involved with, with that, that field and that movement as well. We're going to have to have you back to do a conversation on that because that is not something we can do in a few minutes. That, that requires a lot of time. Uh, Molly, always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jason.